This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. The title of today's show is Slippery When Wet. That was sent in by John Rolfs on Twitter. I'm your host, Jonathan Simon, stepping in for Spanners today. And being the Monaco Grand Prix, it's only fitting you join the crown jewel of F1 podcasts. Normally, Monaco is associated with that typical progressive race, safety cars, a lack of overtaking, one of the longest races of the year. But this year, the jewel just seemed to shine bright. Despite it falling on the same day as the Indy 500, which it always does, usually in history, and the same weekend as the Missed Apex 24-hour Enduro, we all know you were tuning into that over the weekend too, Monaco's 2023 edition was a race to remember. And I think it had a little bit of everything, well, except ironically, no safety car. But apart from that, it literally had everything about what Grand Prix racing is all about. So let's dive in and unravel this ball of string. But first, I'll remind you, you are, we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. Of course, as always, we're joined by a panel of experts, the superstars of Mist Apex, the number one driver. First up, the man most likely satisfied after the race weekend, probably due to the fact that almost every tyre compound received a little bit of love. It's Matt Trumpets. Boring. Top three finished where they started. Why should I watch? <laughs> and fresh off no sleep after racing in Mist Apex's 24-hour enduro, much like the rest of our crew, very, very tired. Say hello to Kyle Power. <laughs> that was a Monaco Grand Prix that I thoroughly enjoyed for a change. 
I enjoyed it too. And former F1 reporter, I think, enjoyed it too. His name is Jules Seegers from the beautiful party country of the Netherlands. How's it going over there, Jules? Yes, yes, beautiful party country. Um, going great and uh, keeping half an eye on the Indy 500 where I just saw a car going upside down. So, uh, yeah, up for it. <laughs> well, the race review coming up for this Monaco race review for the Miss Apex podcast, we'll discuss uh, a few things. What might have been, could Fernando Alonso won this race? Had Aston Martin made the right decision in their pit stops? We'll unravel what went on when the heavens opened. There was lots of chaos. I don't know if you saw the track got very, very wet. And our panel give their early review on Mercedes' heavily anticipated upgrade. <laughs> So, of course, let's kick it off with probably the biggest ticket item is uh, the perfect cocktail that Monaco was. I think, Matt, for this race, you take Monaco in general and you always think, okay, so, so what did we need for a good Monaco race? We had great strategy, rain to mix things up. We had a chaos sort of driver in terms of Lance Stroll giving us some entertainment here and there. But not to mention an awesome qualifying session um, that went nip and tuck right down to the final moments. Well, yeah, and this is this is the thing. I want everyone to go back onto the internet in the Wayback Machine and look at everything they've written about how boring Formula One was in the last races. Watch this race and realize that there's always an element of luck. And if Monaco isn't is rarely the greatest race, if it suffers from having or gains from having the lowest bar of expectations we could possibly manage, it does remind us that gambling, strategy, and luck, things that are beyond even the most well-resourced Formula One team, are always going to be the things that make racing worth watching. It's fun to pick apart a chess match, but for sheer chaos, it's also highly entertaining. Well, you say the word gambling, and if you're going to talk about that, Monaco is probably the perfect place for it, Kyle. You talk about a racetrack that is around with barriers right up close to the tarmac. Any mistake could end your race. And despite the fact that, uh, you know, mistakes can end your race, when the race was dry, almost nobody made a mistake the entire way until the rain came in. Yeah, that was crazy. So you say gambling and gambling, you know, it's just not for the teams on the strategy. The drivers are gambling every braking zone, every exit, how close they dare get to the wall. It's a bit of a gamble, as we saw, which we'll probably get on to later in the end of Verstappen's quality lap. He fully gambled on everything. So it's crazy. And we have this, and this is why Monaco's, they, they're never usually like the most exciting races, but up until, especially up until the pit stops, there's always this underlying tension of there could be a crash, there could be a safety car, is somebody going to get stitched up on the strategy? And this is what Monaco Grand Prix always brings is this constant tension. So I was watching the first half of the race, the dry bit at least, absolutely enthralled. I was like, right, someone's going to trigger the undercut, the undercut, someone's going to trigger this, someone's going to do this. And someone's going to do this and we're waiting. And then they're all hanging out and waiting for the rain. So actually, even though we actually did have some action, but even if there was, there's not any action, I still thought that was thoroughly entertaining as like a, a true Formula One fan. I was on the edge of my seat waiting for it all to kick off as it can do at any moment at Monaco. Well, Jules, is this because maybe Monaco, our expectations are lowered and we're preparing ourselves for such a, you know, the B word, the boring word is a bit of a strong word to say this. But, you know, for us, we're not expecting much just... This Monaco race, if this was at any other racetrack, would you still have enjoyed it? Um, good question. Um, 
Probably. Uh, I think I think a lot of Formula One fans tend to enjoy races that have rain in them and that have uh, unexpected rain or difficult to to uh, uh, estimate when the rain actually arrives. So I think, yeah, any track would have would have been enjoyable. Uh, but I think the reason, as you say, um, it works really well for Monaco is because until then, um the the thing you're waiting for is for a driver to make a mistake because apart from that there's no no real chances of of actual fighting would everyone have enjoyed it no would i have enjoyed it yes we had an amazing mix of tire strategy at the start of the race that we knew was going to play out differently we had cars out of position with faster cars behind that were being defended against. So even the slightest mistake could cause a position change. And yeah, it does sort of go back to the refueling era where all the action is entirely in the pits. But despite that, there were strategic probabilities in play that had to be decided on and had real world consequences even before the rain showed up. And I will say, yeah, it is a low bar for Monaco, but my money was on if it didn't rain. A stroll was eventually going to put someone into a wall based on the way he was driving today. I don't know why. I'm not saying he's a bad driver, period, but he seemed to be a real chaos agent today. That's a really good point about the strategy variation at the start. And I I can't remember the last time. It is so rare. And I don't think maybe some of the newcomers to Formula 1 probably not realize how rare it is to get the top 10 on such a different variation of tires. There's a mix of hards, mix of mediums. And this is really strange. It just goes to show what a unique event Monaco is because they're all gambling. Some are playing the long game. Some are playing the short game. They're all kind of playing safety car roulette, really. And we even had some soft tires at the back of the grid, I believe. So it's such a strange mix to see to see those strategy variations, which is really good. So I was excited before the race had even started. And I think one thing you're all forgetting quickly is the fact that there was a mixture of teams too. I mean, look at, you know, the top three was three completely different teams. Kyle, probably in great representation of the Jordan that's sitting behind you, which mm-hmm. probably, I'm assuming, cost you millions of dollars to get there as a wallpaper. But um Matt, to me, you had an Alpine, you had, now who else is on the point? You had a, a Red Bull, you had an Aston Martin, you had two Mercedes following with upgrades. Formula One's competitive, and, and if we can get close racing like this at Monaco every year, this track has got to stay for the long term. Yeah, I, I think so. I think, I think it's worth it. Well, first of all, let's face it, Formula One is a marketing business. Monaco is not going anywhere because all the VIPs like to go to Monaco. But having said that, there is a certain value in it. It tests the drivers in a very specific way that they're not really tested at any other track. So I think it has value there. And and last, and, and apparently now with this new, um, with the Pirelli tires we have, and with the compounds they're bringing, we're, we're seeing strategic variation where we've not seen it before. And the thing about Monaco, too, to understand from a technical point of view is it's the least power-sensitive track on the whole calendar, meaning that if my power unit isn't as good, it doesn't matter as much. If my aerodynamics are not super efficient, it doesn't matter as much. There's a lot more of the driver involved. And um, granted, in the art of boring tire management, there's a lot more of the driver involved than at a lot of other tracks. Yeah, and along with that, Jules, is the Red Bull at this track. You know, everybody says, oh, look, the Honda Power Unit's why they're the quickest car on the grid. It's all about the car. And, you know, Max Verstappen's only winning championships because of the car. But look, I mean, 
The dude put in one of the best qualifying laps we've ever seen. Yes, they were the quickest car in sector three for most of the weekend, and we'll, we'll get to that a little later on. But this track isn't really known for its straight line speed, yet the Red Bull was still quick. Yeah, it, I just saw in the in the live chat, uh, I think uh, Maria mentioned that uh, for Stoppen, he, uh, he used the walls like uh, to bounce back from uh, during that quality lap, which it kind of looked that way, but... You know, with Monaco being so unforgiven, I'm sure it didn't really, really happen like that. But um, yeah, I mean, the thing is, as 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 the cars evened out more due to the rain, you could see Verstappen. He was he was in a league of his own on on the on the dry. Uh, Alonso kept him honest for quite a while. But he's, I don't know. I, I mean, it, it, at the beginning of the season, I thought like, well, we've seen the best of a stop and, you know, um, how much better can he get? But I was really impressed to press this weekend. Well, Max Verstappen was very, very impressive. So now it's time to find out how he won the race and where the race was won and lost. Well, obviously... You got to say qualifying. That was a sector three that was just stunning to watch. In fact, all of the last qualifying session was stunning to watch. First, we had the lap from Alcon where Alpine put him out and he had a clear track and he set a great time in a car that weirdly has turned out to be the third fastest of a Red Bull and an Aston, at least as far as the race results are concerned, at a weekend where they really needed it. Secondly, And this is what matters most as far as the win goes. We had this strategy battle at the start of the race with Alonso on the hard tire, risking giving up a place to Ocon behind on the medium tire. And we had Max doing the thing that Pirelli suggested, like ticking your boxes here. We are in charge of this race. We're going to start on the standard tire. We're going to follow the standard strategy and we're going to make you do something different to beat me and even without the rain that already set up a fascinating narrative that needs unpicking and that's one thing kyle that a lot of teams do at this track is they set up the cars for quality because saturday is where it counts you know grid position is everything i look at the alpines and i go well the race pace wasn't that good today they were sort of holding up the mercs and the ferraris it can be argued in a sense and that's the way i felt it was but um, those cars were dialed in for Saturday, and that's where the race is usually won and lost at Monaco. Yeah, and it's quite odd. Um, so Ocon seemed to think he had a very strong race pace before before the race. But what's really interesting here, so so on their starting tyres, so as I said, so Verstappen's gone on like the fastest tyre to start on the mediums, as did sort of Hamilton and Lewis, which I think may have been more of a case of a confidence thing. He was still trying to build in the car, put him on the softer tyres. But... I'm not sure that anybody or Red Bull were predicting that the rain was going to come Like at the start of the race. I think they were right. They're going to stick him on the medium tyres. They're going to get him out. They're going to look for the first window to drop him, to try to drop him into and get his stop out of the way and then try and drop him into and get him on his hard tyres to go to the end. But I think probably about a third of the race in, the chance of the rain started to become very, very real. And they're like, right, we need to maybe change our tactic here and push you really deep onto softs. Because if you had the prior knowledge that the rain was going to come at the end at the end of the race, then um, you wouldn't start them on the medium tyres. You'd go on the hards. You'd want to go as long as possible. But the fact that they managed to make those medium tyres that were that were graining up, went through the graining phase, come back, it was a bit remiss of um, of a, 
of Hamilton in, I think it was 2019, hanging on to the mediums right at the end. So mm. I don't think that was an intentional strategy from Red Bull at the start. I think they were very much thinking on their feet and they had the driver that could deliver it. Well, I, I want to talk about this a little bit because we did see the graining happen much earlier on the medium tire. And, and I had some words, nice words, uh, with Mike Caulfield about that during the race. And uh, he pointed out that the mediums were much more susceptible to the graining, that you would get that on the hearts, that, but just due to the basic nature of the compound, it would be shallower and would go away quicker. The hard was clearly the better tire to be on at the start for this race. The fact that we saw some teams on the medium is interesting because it suggests they didn't either have faith in their driver to deliver a start, or they didn't have faith in their concept to be able to run the hard tire at the beginning. And um, that would include both Ocon, Max, uh, like I said, that's mm. the standard strategy. So I think he's covering off any possibility of an Alonso uh, burglary. Kyle. Yeah. And with the starting strategy, it's really strange. So if you kind of look at it in sort of layout, you've got the mediums that should be a bit quicker, but you'll have to stop earlier and then go on to the hards like regardless in monaco whatever happens you know barring weather it's going to be a one stop you will never see a two or three stop monaco race unless it's extremely bizarre circumstances because track position is key so so you've got the medium so if you start on the mediums i'd argue that that was probably the better strategy because it gives you more window for the hards the hards can go longer so if you have to maybe pit earlier if there's an opportune safety car on say lap 20 you could bolt the hards on and go to the end now, if you start on the hards, you kind of back yourself into a corner a little bit, because if there's a safety car on lap 20, you can maybe try pitting and putting the mediums on, but you're really going to be struggling towards the end of the race. So it is a bit of a risk starting on the hards because you can leave yourself open to having not many strategy options if there's an early race race safety car. Or, or you could do what Joe did, which was start on the softs, get all the grip in and, and try and make up some positions, which didn't work out too well for him because he ended up pitting at the end of lap one too. But uh, Jules, there were a few drivers who started on the hards and decided to go long. And for some reason, Max Verstappen and the Red Bull said, look, we, we've got the medium. Let's make this last 50 laps, which I was very surprised of. And I thought, look, why didn't the likes of Ocon or, or Hamilton or couple of the other drivers who started on the mediums try not to extend that stint was that the most impressive part of Verstappen's race for you I think it I think it caught them by surprise a bit too um their um it, at, by lap 40 or 42 I believe um it, it seemed like those mediums on Verstappen's car had come to a second life or or something like that uh he, he really started getting them going again and I don't think uh for other teams that might have been an option as it was for Red Bull because of, you know, how their car and how Verstappen can manage those tires. Well, what's really interesting about it, if you, if you think about the psychology of it, Red Bull, their number one priority had to be, I'm in front. If I'm in front, I can dictate this race. So putting Max on the medium tire, which is the only tire you would stick on to stay in front, makes perfect sense. Alonzo, Aston, they just, they seed that field. They're like, we're going to do the opposite. Yeah, we're rolling the dice a little bit, but Alonzo is a genius. So if he gets a jump, we're in, we're in seventh heaven here. There's no getting around him on the hard tire and we can go until we feel like we want new tires. And then you have Ocon behind on the medium tire. Again, I think this is Alpine under severe pressure from their upper corporate management saying 
if we put him on the hard tire and he loses a place, that's going to look bad for us. If we put him on the medium tire and he loses a place, that's going to look bad for our driver. And it's a lot easier to blame things on drivers than it is to take the responsibility yourself. And then at the back, you have Perez, who drives exactly one lap on the medium, comes in, puts on the hard, and for all the world, him and Joe and I believe was at Hulkenberg, all put on the hard tire after one lap of running to basically do a zero stop or and hope that a safety car or weather rescued their race. And and this is this is the kind of thinking that's going on here. But the battle at the front between Alonso and Verstappen, it was all about this tire choice. And it was Max and Red Bull on that medium tire, absolutely ruining Aston's strategy by running it I think 40 laps was Pirelli's maximum suggestion for running the medium tire. They ran it 55 laps and Alonso still hadn't caught him. I, I, I read that the exact uh, uh, um, uh, the way around, Matt, because I, I felt like Alonso kind of had Red Bull uh, where he wanted them. He could wait. Uh, he could wait for possible rain because he was on the hearts. And he was just there, you know, kind of um, uh, putting Max into into a corner, just waiting for his mediums to 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 drop off. He he would have to go in, and Alonso would still be able to keep going and wait for the rain even longer. But I I felt it wasn't like a, a tactical genius thing from Red Bull. I think they just really really kind of locked in with how the mediums turned out on, on, on Max's car. Okay, so I'm going to have to agree with you slightly there. Annoyingly, it was, a, it was a good look for Aston to wait for the weather on the hards once they knew the weather was coming. But if that's the case, are we going to have to talk about why they didn't then put on tires that were appropriate for the weather? And as, as far as Max goes, I will absolutely disagree with you. I don't think... I can I can think of maybe one or two other drivers that might have been able to get the mediums that far. I think what helped guys as well was the fact that the track temperature lowered by almost 10 degrees at one point during the race. And that probably helped tire dig a little bit to help the, the mediums go a long distance. What I, I found really fascinating, Kyle, and like I mentioned earlier, is why all the drivers who knew that there was going to be rain, and I'm talking the likes of Ocon and the Alpine, and yes, he scored a podium, so it worked out. I'm talking the likes of Hamilton and a couple others. Why they didn't just try and extend the tire and just try and go long all the way? Because at Monaco, like we said, track positions, everything. So if you're in front with a bad tire, it's probably going to work out more often than not. Yeah. Um, I actually think that this is quite odd talking about Hamilton this way. I actually think with the new upgrades with mercedes and particularly with the alpine as well i think they were starting to hit big problems with their mediums they were graining them and then wearing them and you mentioned the temperature dropping now this is quite crucial for graining because graining is not really that hot temperature related it's mainly when the temperature is too cool you get something called cold graining the tire will start to slide more across the surface which balls the rubber up and causes this graining and it will clean up after a while but i think hamilton and Ocon both got themselves into a bit of a hole with their graining and I think their hands were pretty much forced they were starting to lose a lot of pace and they kind of rolled not rolled the dice they're like right the rain may come it may not come 
if we wait for it, we might lose 20, 30 seconds and drop completely off and be in a complete mess. So let's just stick to our guns now and react when it happens. And in the end, that proved to be the right the right choice. Yeah, I just want to get in that, that one of the also one of the problems you have with the medium tires, you have a thinner tread to begin with. And as that tread wears away, it gets harder and harder to maintain heat in the bulk of the tire. The tire gets cold and then 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 you get again that cold graining that Kyle is talking about. It was Hamilton uh that triggered the he essentially attempted an undercut on Ocon. Um but what we saw with Ocon's pace was he took immediately he was a second lap faster. So I think for sure it was part strategy and part also like we are coming to the end of this tire and we are going to start losing out seriously if we don't get off it. Well, part of the biggest, well, to me, the biggest storyline was whether or not Fernando Alonso could have won this race. It's been 10 years. Can you believe, Jules? 10 years since Fernando Alonso last won a race. I remember the race vividly, 2013 Spain in a Ferrari. And I thought, oh, he might win a championship with Ferrari the next year or the year after. And since then, he's yet to win a race. It would have been quite fitting if uh, Aston Martin were able to nail the strategy. And, and some people argue they could have. The team has outright said after the race and, and, we couldn't do anything. There was there was nothing we could do to win this race. There was no chance. But that would have been awesome to see Alonso, a 10-year anniversary. It would have been an F1 record for longest gap between victories too. It would have been a marvelous story. Yeah, and I think if it was going to happen, it had to be this weekend because, you know, if especially after his qualifying uh, performances, he almost had, had pole and... I felt like if he's if he's putting that car on pole, no way. He, he'd rather drive into the swimming pool there than let Max, Max Verstappen pass. Didn't happen, but um, uh, I'm I'm afraid. I'm, let's say this: I'm curious to see if Aston Martin can uh, maintain this form and maintain this development. Um, uh, as opposed to maybe Mercedes, maybe Ferrari. So I'm, 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 for Alonso, I'm afraid they might drop off a bit in the, in the course of the season. So I'm not a big Alonso fan, to be honest, but I would, would have been happy to see him uh, take it this weekend. Not part of the Alonso fan club. That disappoints me. <laughs> And <laughs> no. I'm part of the I'm part of, I'm part of the media Alonso fan club because it's enjoyable to hear him talk. I think he's a fascinating driver. Do you think Matt though, if this is prime Alonso and he's 27, 28, he somehow sticks his car on pole, and you know how as you age you lose tense, just reaction time and all this kind of stuff. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you never don't know happens. age. Never happens. Okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> you you were quick to jump in there, Matt. So you might still be able to have it when you're older. Indeed, indeed. No, I don't think um, I don't think Alonso had the car quite to be on pole. We saw again in in qualifying. We saw fast and surprising laps, but I think he absolutely had the car, and he had given the environmental circumstance of the rain. He had the car and the strategy to win today. I think a hundred percent Aston didn't employ the correct strategy. And I think the data is out there publicly, and I really want to talk about it because they went on the charm offensive with the television commentary, and everyone's like, oh, well, it was never going to happen anyway. Mm -mm. No, if they'd done the thing, they would have won, and that's it. Yeah, I am. Um, I was yeah watching some of the comments afterwards, and basically just the press team just take it. They were like, oh, it wouldn't have made any difference. And as soon as they come out and said that, I, um, there was a 
there was a bit of a stench of some bovine um bovine dropping shall we say we, we can call it going around i did not um yeah uh yeah i, I didn't believe it because when i was when they were coming into the pits again i've said this before in the podcast like on me as a bloke on my sofa i was like surely they're going to drop on they, they're going to bolt on the intermediates and alonso is going to win that's what i was saying to myself well it's going to win because it all looked like others were already on the intermediates the rain looked like it was getting heavier to be fair they did say that as soon as he got to the end of the pit lane they realized they'd made a mistake but I think they took a crazy gamble there. And I genuinely think that they potentially threw away the win right there. They did a Ferrari, in my opinion. Well, it was how many pit stops was it, Jules? It was Alonso came in twice on 54, 55. Verstappen had one pit stop. Now, the, the, what we're trying to argue here is the gap between Verstappen and Alonso. If, if Fernando had gotten onto the intermediates, would he have made up the time difference in that one lap to overtake Max? That's what we're trying to find out. Do you think he would have done it without the two pit stops? It's a it's a tough question. Oh, <laughs> you you sure know how to how to ask my ask the questions, uh, John. But it's okay. Um, I don't think so. Um, I think that the conditions would have been too tricky, and especially going uh, down Monaco in uh, a wet, semi wet uh, condition. I think you're so cautious with your braking zones, and I, I, I don't see uh, it would have worked that way. If only, if only someone were literally um, obsessive enough to go and look at actual lap times and actual gaps where there's actual data that exists and discover whether or not that gap could have been closed. If only someone had done that, someone like, oh, I don't know, maybe a member of yourself. the panel. Well, tell us the lap times, Matt, because this is something we spoke about. We need to know the lap times. Who was on the intermediates at the same time? I think it was Stroll. Stroll was the test dummy. This was Alonso's teammate. Or had he crashed out at this point? No, no, he was still in, and he'd been on the enters, but his times were deceptive, and and I'll get to that in a minute. But what we need to know is Alcon's times. Alcon went on to the intermediate tires the lap before and he and Hamilton did, and Russell, who was ahead of him at the time, but then just stupidly drove it off the course, um, he and they all went on to the enters on lap 54. So we can use them as a good comparison of how much the gap would have closed down. And basically what I found when I did this math, and I will go through the math, but usually I learn not to do that because people's eyes cross and they can't keep track of the numbers when I'm just talking. But when I did the math, basically... I took the gap before Alonso and Verstappen pitted and after they came out of the pit exit to Ocon, who was already on the intermediate tires. And what I discovered was that had Alonso got onto the enters the same lap that he went onto the mediums for the single lap, which is lap 54, he would have been between two and a half gap to Alonso and Ocon or four seconds uh, gap from Ocon to Verstappen up the road ahead of Max. And that's based on Alcon's times. And both Alonso and Verstappen were driving quicker cars. So there's also a slight other aspect to this. There's a very objective aspect of the lap times and the data saying, but there's also the slightly more subjective sort of aspect to think of. And that's that's Alonso would have had one lap extra knowledge on a on a foreign now race surface, which you don't know, on tires it would have been a little bit more up to temperature. Max as well. So even if he would have come out behind Max and Max was coming out the pit lane, 
Max got to try to get up to speed and feel his way around on new tyres, and Alonso would have already been up to speed, so we could have seen a move. Yeah, Alonso would have been much more thing, but a much more um, you know, aggressive against him because he would have been more confident. But Max tried to crawl back to the pits and see him. He was playing ricochet off the walls on the way back to the pits. He was hemorrhaging time. So I can't see how Alonso would have come out behind him anyway. He surely would have been clearly in front. Yeah, well, so since you asked for the numbers clearly, uh, the gap from Ocon to Verstappen was 55.5 seconds. And after after Verstappen pitted, it was 31.4 seconds. The gap from Ocon to Alonso was 33.9 seconds. After Alonso pitted the second time for his intermediate tires, that gap was 9.45 seconds. And both of those are bigger than the 20 seconds that that Alonso actually had as a gap to Verstappen the first time he pitted. There's no doubt about it in my mind. They put enters on Alonso. Alonso wins this race. God, Matt, numbers. Numbers really kill me. You know, at this stage, this early in the morning, after a 24-hour <laughs> event and everything, oh, I'm, I'm absolutely dying. I'm sorry. But, I, know, I did my best. I tried to resist. What one? I'll tell you what. One battle on the racetrack, and that was the battle for the podium, wasn't decided on numbers, and it was decided by an error from a very good young prodigy. We'll delve into all of that next, and the midfield chaos. Oh, Kyle, Kyle, where do we start? Lance Stroll, did he kick off the all the chaos down there in the midfield? I think somebody said, uh, and there was a lot of people on Twitter saying, "Look, I think he was driving like it was." The F1 game with no damage on or something. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, that's, um, well, one, it's quite harsh. I actually don't think it was Stroll that started the mayhem. I believe that was Hulkenberg. Um, it wasn't even a move he did on Sargent. It was an assault on Sargent into Mirabeau <laughs> that he sort of went on in the first lap and then caused a huge sort of tailback at a concertina. And as we saw going into the, is it the Grand Hotel, the Lowe's hairpin? I can't remember what they call it now, but um yeah. But I'm just going to call it Lowe's. So going to the Lowe's hairpin, everyone knows that there's like a backup sort of place there. They're pretty much having to dip the clutches in because they're stalling and they're stationary. Lance tries to go for an outside move up against the wall. But the way the walls are, he was going into, well, the the, the disappearing wedge of doom where his where his space was always going to run out. But, you know, he's trying to make moves happen. He knows he's in a fast car. His teammates in second place. He's out of position from a bit of bad luck in qualifying from damaging his floor. So he's desperate to make up moves in the first lap of the race with all this huge concertina effect. I know what he was thinking. He's thinking they're all going to be parked on the apex on the inside and I'm going to cruise all the way around the outside. But it didn't really happen. And his 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 high IQ idea ended in broken carbon fibre and being squeezed up against the wall. But I I I can get his thinking. Well, Jules Carl brings up a great point there, which is, yes, the rain caused a lot of chaos, but the early laps were as chaotic as the next when the heavens opened. You'd look at Sergio Perez as well. He knew his teammate was in best position to win this race. He's mucked up his uh, sort of position to score points and win the race through qualifying. And now he's tried to make up positions and he had his own collisions early on himself as well. And I think somebody like him, he's walked away with zero points. This couldn't have been any worse for Sergio Perez, who's trying to make a championship assault on his two-time world champion teammate. Yeah, I think today was the official end to Sergio Perez's uh, world championship ambitions. Uh, I mean, if you start on the back uh, at the back and and things go the way they they went, 
um, you know, that's possible. But um, next to the unfortunate decisions by uh, by uh, the the Red Bull pit wall, at a certain point he was it was just like he lost his mind for one or two laps, uh, sending it uh, almost into stroll. Uh, hitting Magnussen, losing his front wing, uh, uh, and um, uh, I think a couple of laps before that, he already uh, hit the barriers. I think uh, with Stroll as well. So it's I, I don't know. He 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 was supposed to be, or he was sort of made up to be in the previous races, like some kind of street circuit magician, you know. Um, and uh, especially after last year, uh, Perez at Monaco. Uh, but I, it it was so weird to see. It it, it was just like uh, like he, he bad decision after bad decision, and maybe maybe what happened at the Red Bull pet, pit wall, Red Bull pit wall, got to his head, and you know he lost it. You do realize, Jules, we have a small contingent of Sergio Perez fans and Mexican F1 supporters who do not want to hear the truth from you right now, which, Matt, if you think about it too, all of Sergio Perez's Red Bull victories, if I'm not mistaken, have come at street circuits. So for him to stuff his weekend up at Monaco is pretty surprising. Well, yeah, if he's a street circuit specialist, then you'd think that would be it. But it he didn't he seemed to be having a rough weekend and the only good news for Sergio Perez is he was by far not the only driver to absolutely lose it on the track today signs completely red mist stroll as we've mentioned completely red mist and i don't know Kyle have i missed any um no well we had russell not quite red misting but Yep, making mistakes. Loads of people were making mistakes and getting frustrated. Um, my thing with Perez was my big thing was um it was kind of like an attitude thing going in. It's like he's in the Red Bull and he's got this entitlement just to dive bomb or people need to get out of the way. We've seen this quite a lot with Perez. It's been in Red Bull doing some of these crazy, crazy moves. But the one that really got my goat was when I think it was Stroll trying to let his teammate pass to lap him. Perez tried to follow him through into the chicane whacked into his car, jumped the chicane, just overtook him. And then when Stroll was rightfully trying to get back past, Perez pretty much just slammed the door, squeezed him into the wall. Stroll had to back out. And then Perez is complaining that he pushed me wide and I shouldn't have to give the place back. But I think it was obvious to everyone he was going to have to give the place back. But he, the very next lap, he then drove into the back of K-Mag's car and then blamed him for brake checking him. So he ended up naturally giving the place back anyway. But he went on a couple of laps of... Um, of I think sort of um, racing driver, bad attitude, attitude, entitlement sort of thing of going there. And like, it was no one else's fault. You, you know, you know, it was, it was everyone else's fault, not his fault. But yeah, I didn't like that move of jumping someone in the chicane and then squeezing them into the wall afterwards. That was, I actually wrote filth down in my notes as he sort of did that. Um, uh, I, I was, oh, that's dirty. That's really, really dirty. But no, he had a bit of a mayor bless him. Um, and yeah, he just, he, he stacked it all onto himself because on the, because of qualifying and i think he's trying to live up to this hype of he is the the the, the street circuit king so he put he's under a load more pressure so he was just absolutely caution to the wind and just screwed it up i mean people can make mistakes it happens all the time well somebody who should have been really good at monaco was george russell mr saturday so you'd think he'd qualify the a newly designed new not newly designed actually a newly upgraded mercedes and they're trying to dial in all these upgrades to get the car quicker but for me, it was, Matt, was it when George Russell, he had that free pit stop when the rain came in. And so he sort of lucked out when the rain came in, made the mistake down. At, was it at Mirabeau he made that mistake, Matt, I think? And he, he's gone a yeah. little bit deep. 
What we missed, though, when they cut through the replays, I think, was the fact that we didn't see Ocon and Hamilton go through. Obviously, it was mentioned a little later on. But that was Russell's chance to get on the podium here at Monaco, despite the fact he struggled for most of the weekend. Yeah, I know a lot of what we love to talk about is the woulda, coulda, shouldas. I mean, and we're not done yet. We have Ferrari to get to with Signs, another driver who lost his mind and had a point when he was arguing with his team. But for Russell, there's no woulda, coulda, shoulda. Russell was the only hard tire runner still out on the track when he pitted lap 54 ahead of Ocon and everybody else. He put on the correct tire, which is the enters. And and I do want to have a rant about why he knew that and Aston didn't at some point if there's time. And he drove out of the pits ahead of Ocon, also on the enters, drove up the hill, drove to the turn and locked up his brakes. He said there was a yellow flag. He stepped on the brakes. They locked. He went straight. Ocon went by. Hamilton went by. And then he, I believe, backed out directly into the path of Perez, who just absolutely clouded him and did not make his day any better. Yeah, and that's really tricky. I mean, you can't blame him too much for snatching a break and going up the Escape River at Mirabeau, but it was under yellow flags. Now, in karting championships I've raced in, they usually penalise. If you spin or go off under yellow flags, like you're actually penalised because you're supposed to be backing right off. But I think, you know, it's Monaco, it's slippery, first lap out of pits, and he was probably reacting to the yellow flags. But um, yeah, he backed out there. Annoyingly, the director, who was great, I thought, for most part of the race, missed it. But he got his penalty for being whacked by um, Perez. But yeah, some interesting radio messages from George as well. Ever the politician in the uh, in the cockpit, I think what they might need is to give him a fax machine so he can he can fax off some proposals <laughs> to his team during the race. Would be quite nice. He can fax some powerpoints to them. <laughs> yes. He's very calm, isn't he? I, I actually love it. You know, one engineer that actually frustrated me at one stage was... Uh, so, Lando Norris's engineer, I feel like he fits too much detail into such a crammed radio message. He's like, oh, the rain is coming on lap 35. It's going to be class one of this Grand Prix in Monaco 2023. Jules, could you drive with that much information being stuffed into your brain as a Grand Prix driver? I, I would I would freak out. If I had all this information while trying to to drive a Formula One car, I think uh, uh, Norris already in one of the the earlier races uh, uh, snapped at his uh, at his engineer to uh, to uh, not feed him that much info. But despite uh, this, I think Norris was one of the drivers of the day actually, because in especially in the dry conditions, the McLarens were outside of the points. And um, so in the end, you know, you, you got into the points. And um, uh, what was good about it was that I think when everybody went in for, for Inters, uh, they called in Norris and they sent him out on hot tires, <laughs> you know, like like nothing was happening. So it was uh, lap 52, I think. Yeah. Yeah, there was. So, uh, you know, extra stop for him as well. And then to... Uh, you know, to um, uh, get into the points. And actually, uh, when the track was drying in the last, I think, 10 laps, he was uh, nobody was lapping faster uh, than Norris except for Stappen. So uh, good job. We must mention, Kyle, is I think Norris and Alonso were the two to almost do back-to-back pit stops. I have to check the exact lap Norris mm-hmm. came in. And despite that fact, McLaren had a double points finish in a car that they've struggled with for most of the start of this year. Norris came in ninth, Piastri scored the final point. That's remarkable for McLaren to clean up and, and grab the last few points at Monaco. 
Absolutely. Uh, considering as well that I don't think their car was working in the drive particularly well. Norris said in his after race interviews that a car wasn't really working. They were struggling on the tyres. Um, they're a bit lost at the moment. Um, so yeah, they, he pitted on lap 50 and then did four laps on the hards and then it started raining. So they were a little bit premature with their with their pitting. But um, but he was on the mediums as well, Norris. So he did actually a really good job to get the mediums that far as well. He's like five laps short of max. But whilst we're on McLaren, also big shout out to Piastri, first Monaco Grand Prix with a difficult McLaren car. And, you know, let's face it, he wasn't that far off Lando Norris. And as we know, Lando Norris is brilliant in the wet and was the fastest man on track. And they actually inverted the positions in the end because he lost out a bit, a la George Russell, um, Lewis Hamilton type, you know, in the pit stops. But, you know, you know big up for Piastri. Wait a, wait a sec. Did you say Norris brilliant in the wet? And I go, I go back to Russia 2021 and I think, that, did he make the right decision in that race? Right. Ah, well, that was another decision where, where McLaren were like phase, it's, it's, it's intensity 1.735 rain for the next two laps and then 2.734, um, square root back to 10 <laughs> for the next two laps, you know, giving us their driver. So again, it was very, um, very typical McLaren information giving. So, so yeah, I'm, I don't really blame. Russia on Norris too much, but he's proven once he get once he got on the intermediate tires and his car started working, he was at, at, at one point like three seconds faster than most other people on track. So that's that's quite impressive. Yeah, followed by panic. I remember for Lando Norris, and then the race was lost. And unfortunately, he's never won a race in F one, and hopefully, he does win <laughs> a race soon. We're all Lando Norris fans, but Matt to Esteban Ocon, he scored his third career podium. He's been first, second, and third. I think. I don't know if anybody's done that in F1 history. Got to check that. Not that it's probably a useless stat, but we'll get well, to that another not time. For Alpine. Yeah, not for them, of course. But hey, how about that? A podium for Alpine at this stage of the season. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Well, I did make a bit of a joke earlier about you know, it just finished the way it started, so why should I pay attention? But were it not for uh, Russell locking those brakes, that that third place was utterly lost. And this leads us down a path that I do want to get to at some point, because I know we have infinite amounts of time here on this show, which is that Russell was the last of the hard tire runners, but the second last of the hard tire runners was Norris, who we are talking about. But Russell, but uh, Leclerc, and Gasly also on the hard tire both gave it up their pursuit of the rain a bit earlier and maybe a bit too soon. 
And that would have entirely changed the complexion. But the one person who gave it up way too early was Carlos Sainz. Was he right to be frustrated there? Do you think Jules, Carlos Sainz, of course, very frustrated at Ferrari. Lap 33, they came in on the hards. He wasn't on the mediums. That was the fascinating part. Yeah, I think I think Carlos uh, felt that this was the weekend to uh, to make uh, to make a point. To uh, you know, there's this this talk of uh, Ferrari going for Hamilton. Uh, the Ferrari boss already, uh, you know, openly in front of the media uh, admitted that if you know that they wanted to uh, offer Hamilton a contract. So you know, every everything points towards his seat being very insecure so he qualifies in front of leclerc and you know th- this was his moment this was his chance and then you know being stuck behind ocon because you know i think fair play usually uh the ferrari and signs should be faster than ocon in the alpine but didn't happen and i think he got really frustrated and then you know was Kind kind of ironic when the radio message was broadcasted, like yeah, let let's push him to uh, to use up his tires, and then right after that you saw him crashing into the back of him. And 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 what we shouldn't forget, I think, is you know because we were talking about Ocon, um, Ocon was very 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 lucky, a very lucky boy, not to get a puncture there because um, uh, Sainz's front wing really clipped his right rear wheel. Uh, and and his race, or at least his chances on the podium, could have easily vaporated vap- uh, at that point. So, um, yeah, um, really good drive. And especially also Ocon in the wet with Hamilton pushing uh, for his position, being within a second uh, for a couple of laps. Um, hats off to uh, to how he managed, uh, managed it. Yeah, well, I just want to go back to think about this. I mean, Ocon pitted on what, lap 35? in response to the Hamilton undercut. Now, Ferrari, we're going to accuse them of making a strategic error here. I don't think they did. I think Ferrari made the decision they made because they didn't want Lewis Hamilton in front of them. They weren't thinking about winning a race. They weren't thinking about taking the place away from Alcon. They simply took it as a fact that it's Monaco. Monaco is a procession. And what we have to do above all else is protect whatever track position we have right now. Carlos Sainz did not agree with that. We heard it on the radio. And if we look at the subsequent events of the race, well, he would have been absolutely right. Wouldn't he have been? And it would have been 20 laps later, Kyle, I think. If they just waited 20 laps, track positions, <laughs> everything at Monaco, and they, they would have had the position. Even I was baffled when the Ferraris came in and I thought, look, Patience is is virtue at Monaco. Yeah, well, how terribly dim of them. But no, in reality, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, hindsight's a brilliant thing. But um, yeah, in reality, I kind of agree with Matt. They, I think they had to cover Hamilton off. And yes, Sainz said, "I don't care about Hamilton. I'm quick." It's like, yeah, it doesn't matter about your personal feelings or how you feel. And he was frustrated. He's quick. He's thinking, "I'm ahead of my teammate." I can go and do this thing. He'd, but he'd already damaged his front wing. He's probably arguably going losing a little bit of performance now. And we had this, we've seen this many times before when drivers in the car don't have a, a bigger picture. And Ferrari could probably see that he was more at risk from Hamilton behind than he had a, 
there was more risk from losing a position from Hamilton behind than more than the chance he had of gaining a position in front, particularly with his front wing damage. So we've seen this before from drivers. Remember one that sticks out was Rubens Barrichello at the European Grand Prix in 2009 when he was freaking out at Braun and he just didn't realise the strategy and he shouted, shot his mouth off in the press afterwards without actually having seen the bigger picture. So yeah, um, again, from like a driving point of view, I completely understand why science would be, would be angry and, you know, anyone would question it in there, but was the decision correct? I agree with Matt. I think the decision to pit in there was probably correct. Like Carl and Matt uh, really say that Sainz and Ferrari weren't on the same page today as to what the objectives were. And referring to what Carl said earlier in the show about this uh, this feeling of graining because tires losing temp, I think uh, Ferrari might have been um, um, caught there, um, making a mis- mistaking that for actually uh, graining tires and uh, losing performance and having to to switch to a different tire because they, I think Sainz called in at lap thirty five or something pretty pretty early for it. No, I think maybe even earlier in in the twenties, and he said like, "Oh, the the hard tire is graining more than we expected." And I think maybe they they fell for whatever we want to call it, this trap, and they switched him to to the medium tires. And then after that, he went nuts on the radio, like saying, "I told you this is what what we talked about." And it, it was it was funny, but painful for you know, as as uh, this relationship seems to break down right in front of us. Yeah, and it's just it's a difference in goals. Carlos is perfectly fine finishing 10th if it means he has a chance to win. Ferrari, in the shape they are currently in, is desperate for the maximum amount of points that they have calculated they can get at any given race. So, yeah, was Carlos right? 100%. If they'd stayed out on the hard tire, think about it. Alcon Pitts lap 35. He has 20 laps on a hard tire that's probably pretty fresh because they've been driving slow because Alcon's been managing the medium tire to his car's capability very well. As I mentioned, you know, he did knock a second off his lap time when they told him to hurry up. But he's probably putting inroads into both Alonso and Verstappen. He's taken time out of them because they're stuck in traffic that he's still catching in clean air at that point because they're into lap traffic now. And he's got clean air to drive into. So he catches up to them. He takes some of that time out of them. Alonso puts the wrong tire on. Max waits an extra lap. Carlos comes in, puts the enters on. Where is he now? How close is he to Alonso? How close is he to Max when they come out on their cold enters and he's got his all the fully way up to operating temperature? I'm just saying I can understand both sides of this argument. Well, Ferrari also... In there, with sides, while we're on sort of Ferrari and strategy and stuff like that, um, you know, I think they, well, as I've said before, yeah, if there's balls to be dropped, Ferrari will drop them probably. But when the rain did come with Ferrari, this is what baffled me. They've got two cars. They could have split one. They could have put one onto another tire and hedged their bets. But instead, they chose to be wrong with both cars at the same time, which is, which is incredibly Ferrari. The pressures of Ferrari. I, I. I think I'll steer clear of of the criticism of them. I think it's I think it's easy. They're an easy target. I think these days Ferrari with their it's with the strategy target. and everything. 
Um, one thing, one guy we haven't actually touched up on too much was Pierre Gasly, who was in the second Alpine. Now, I want to know, now who wants to go on this? Because I think Pierre Gasly had a, had a decent race, scored great points, but then what ruined it was his teammate Esteban Ocon scored a podium. So, so where, where, how, what's our judgment on Pierre Gasly? Jules, do you think that, oh, Kyle, do you want to go with this one? Is he, is that a good performance from Pierre Gasly? Um, I think that's a, I think it was a very good performance from Gasly because he has been completely overshadowed by Ocon this year. Um, and I thought that was quite a solid performance. The, the Alpine clearly had decent pace, but again, he was outperformed again by his teammates. So yes, Gasly had a good result. Will he be happy? No, siree. He's going to be a depressed boy again because he's been outscored by his teammate again. And I'm so sorry, Matt, for taking some Ocon limelight away from you. It's all good. Uh, I'm happy to share the love. Well, Matt, they have don't they have a, a very nice relationship? Don't they have a great history, Gasly and Ocon? Or am I getting them mistaken for somebody else? They have such a tumultuous relationship and tumultuous history. Uh, it, well, it they have a long history with its ups and downs. Let's put it that way. But you you ask, was it a good performance from Gasly? Yeah, actually, it was a good performance from Gasly. Did the team maybe miss? a chance to keep him out longer on the hard tire? Well, if you look at what Russell did, yes. But then that begs the question, was he suffering enough with the hard tire at that point? He had to come in. But what I will say is Gasly had a good performance, but Ocon in that Alpine had a stunning performance. Not the first one he's had, not entirely a surprise to people who've followed him from the days in Mauritius and seen him be good in Brazil in the wet. But he absolutely showed today that he's a class driver, I think. And to bank up to the Mercedes, actually. To the Mercedes, and Lewis Hamilton had a, a brilliant race, you could say. Somebody who seemed to appear really well in the practice sessions until his accident in practice three. The car was wheeled up into a crane about 50 feet in the air, I think, as high as the new helicopters that Formula One had. Um, running because they were broadcasting the race for the first time, apart from the local broadcasters. And then all of a sudden in qualifying, you're like, well, well, where's Hamilton gone? Where's his performances? We're a bit confused here. And somehow, Kyle, he puts it up onto a, a very respectable position on the grid, starts in the top five and had a brilliant race. And those Mercedes upgrades is what everybody was looking for. Everybody was looking to see, are these upgrades going to propel Mercedes into a winning position? Are we going to return to championship contenders like we were in 2021? How were the upgrades? Did you think they were good? Um, it's almost impossible to tell. The only way you can tell is how happy did the drivers seem in some of the interviews afterwards. Monaco is a completely unrepresentative track. You know, This is like turning up to a cricket match with your new baseball bat type thing it goes it's not really representative um they're not going to they're they're not going to um they're not going to uh know really until barcelona um so but hamilton seemed a bit more happy with it and he seemed like the cars are still difficult but a bit nicer and he said there's elements where he can feel it's better but that that spill that that little dink into the wall in p3 will completely destroy your confidence going into q1 and you've got to be on it this tricky track the track is eve evolving the track evolution was crazy and hamilton went from struggling to get out of q1 i genuinely thought he was going to be knocked out of q1 at one point and right at the death he managed to, he manages to get himself out of it puts it sixth on the grid he got promoted by charles Leclerc getting a penalty but um but yeah and then gets p4 in the race so i think it's a very strong performance from hamilton there and a bit of a save um 
I think it's a positive direction with the upgrades because you could just see both him and George seemed a bit happier in the in the in the press conferences afterwards. And again, they don't know where they are. I mean, they didn't have a chance to really, really test it. Monaco's so different. The ride heights are going to be so much higher as well than they're running on a normal circuit because it's so bumpy and they've got curbs and drain covers to go over. So I think Mercedes don't really know, but I think they're quietly happy with it. Um, looking from the outside, it looks like a, a positive step, in my opinion anyway. Who knows? Well, Matt, these upgrades were supposed to come in last week at Imola. So this wasn't the track that Mercedes were supposed to test them for the first time. Well, well no. And even Emily would have been uh, challenging because they were employing a new um, qualifying format uh, that restricted the amount of tires you had to use and would have complicated their data gathering somewhat. But given that, I, I have to say that, and no, it's not just because they glued googly eyes on them. The car looked happier in this new configuration. And uh, for all the people who were like, see, I told you it was the side pods. Well, yeah, the side pods are pretty interesting. I won't, I won't disagree with that. But where my attention has really been drawn is the redone front suspension. And I suspect that had they the budget to uh, homologate a new chassis, we would see also a reworked rear suspension as well in gear casing. And that's probably what's on offer for next season. But Kyle is right. It's Barcelona that will show us the real potential of this car in this season. But the real potential of this car, we won't know until next year. And that's, a, that's big, Jules. Can I, I can't wait till next year. I want Mercedes to win now. That's what we all want. A Mercedes win now. When's it going to happen? Well, I, I, nobody's sure that's going to happen. I think if if you'd want that, if you hope for that, you can uh, uh, you know you can retract some hope from last year when they were way off, and until the last few races, they looked like they were pretty much getting up to par with Red Bull. I think they won't be disappointed with this weekend finishing fourth and fifth. Uh, on a track like this, uh, where you you know you run your B spec, so to say, for the first time, I think that's that's more than they uh, they could have wished for. To be to be fair, and um, I think Hamilton after the race said that he found the car to be uh, to be pretty stiff, but he sounded very upbeat about um, you know exploring. The, the 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 development of this of this car and i think overall if you if you hear him this weekend i think russell has been a bit more on the surface but if you if you go from hamilton's remarks during the last couple of days it sounds promising and he and it sounds like he feels a lot better at home within this car um, i mean i think i think we didn't hear him say one time this weekend that he didn't feel connected which was the the remark of the first six races, I think, of this season. So next uh, next up is Spain. Uh, it would be a good track to to test that, obviously. And luckily for them, it's a regular weekend, no sprint races, no qualifying geeks and goofs and and gimmicks. So um, yeah, I'm 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 hoping for whoever, but uh, uh, to make this season more interesting and. And you know, uh, it it would come from from Mercedes, uh, uh, if from any team. Yeah, and it's interesting with this upgrade package. I mean, keep using the word upgrade. I'm actually looking at this not as an upgrade, as a reset. 
it's not upgrade to make performance. They're essentially resetting the direction they're going in. So they are essentially turning up with almost like a Bahrain spec car, which the other ones did. So they're now like sort of several races behind the development curve though, but they needed this correction. So it's essentially, it's, it's a correction and a reset rather than an upgrade in my opinion. But even if you do have a nice upgrade, you, you need to get the setup right. And of course you don't really know what the setup is going to be, what the parameters the car are going to work in. So you need your simulation tools and you also need the very initial inputs from the driver and the very limited practice running that they have now. Um, even though you get hour sessions, they can only run very limited laps in those, in those, in those, um, sort of practice sessions. And the driver then probably has to dictate he wants the setup to go in the right direction. So then, you know, a little birdie may tell us that I think Hamilton may have chosen and demanded to go into the wrong setup direction, which is why they maybe struggled a little bit. And we heard that George was apparently struggling with setup over the weekend. But yeah, so Hamilton himself said that they've gone the wrong direction in the setup. So, um, and again, they're essentially stabbing in the dark and they may have got it wrong. So to finish fourth and fifth with a dodgy setup on the car after a complete reset, I think that's a quite a big success on the on the on the reset and not upgrades. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even with this this setup mistake which which Lewis owned up to, I think if if you if you look at that they are six races down on development, you know, they decided on this going into this path during the Bahrain test. I think, as I said, you can't complain finishing fourth and fifth and, you know, being where you are. They they don't seem to have lost any ground as opposed to the first, first five races with their A-spec. Well, and I think the point that everybody is making is the correct one. Let's face it. Uh, they couldn't show up with the old setup just for Monaco because they had to change how they constructed the cars. Once they made this change, it was going to be what they had to bring. They were stuck with it. They were stuck with a brand new setup that they'd only been able to test in simulations. They showed up here. They didn't necessarily get it entirely right. And look where they finished. They have a much more benign platform to work with, with a much bigger margin of error. If I took anything away from this week's racing, I take that away. And that is hugely promising because they've been working with a very complicated, fiddly, difficult to deal with setup and they've actually been able to do okay with it give them something that's easy to deal with imagine now with the knowledge they've gained over the last season and a half they should really be able to wring the neck of this thing out over the rest of the season well we like to assign blame on the missed apex podcast and so i think it's time for everyone's favorite segment whose fault is it whose fault is it Ah, uh, Logan Sargent, uh, the rookie of F1, and he's very good. He's got some potential, and his team were putting him out here today, Kyle, in terms of, oh, okay, let's put him out on a new tire and get some some testing out of the way, and, and let's try and lap cars quickly. But he was also involved in some on, on-track scraps as well. The hairpin was a bit of chaos for, for Logan Sargent. It was, and I actually don't think any of these are particularly his fault. And I actually think he did a really, really good job of avoiding being planted into the barrier several times. Like I said, there was the, well, what can only be described as the physical assault by Hulkenberg on him into Mirabeau on on lap one. He saw it, opened the wheel and got out. And again, when he got dive bombed. Now, 
there was two Williams trains setting up, one behind Albon and then one behind Sargent as well. And he had a, like a train of very frustrated cars behind him. And K-Mag basically pulled the pin on this and absolutely sent a huge move on him again, I believe, into Mirabeau. And that opened basically, that basically opened the doors for, there is a very explicit way I could, a word I could use to describe this, and I'm not going to. I'm going to say basically open the doors to a group and collective mugging of Sargent and I felt quite quite um quite sorry for him because once one dived he's obviously a bit spooked he's offline then the next one dived and everyone just jumped in they were like vultures and he got absolutely rinsed by just about everybody but credit where credit's due he didn't turn in on anyone he didn't hardly get involved in the scratch he managed to somehow just about keep himself alive and out of trouble even though he was being dive bombed left right and center and it's horrible i've been in sim races when this happens and your confidence gets shot and you're getting dive bombed but i thought he actually kept his head really well to be honest which is impressive jules for an f1 rookie who's under pressure in a car which just seemed to not be there during the race he's attacked by a hungry bunch of f1 drivers who have a lot to prove and logan Sargent managed to get it to the checkered flag yeah yeah, and I must say, I, I had a, a bit of an eye out for him to see. I always uh, like to, to see what, what rookies do on a track like this, you know, because it's, it's so demanding. It lasts for such a long time. You need to see, stay focused for the whole time. And I thought he did really well. I kind of felt for him when, when first after the start, he, uh, he had, he had cars going left and right, uh, on the side of him uh trying some dive bombs um and then uh after he his tires dropped off um uh yeah he was he was a sitting duck but i think he managed it really well and um uh you know you you gotta take your head off uh, for what he uh, for what he's shown today well one thing that i do want to bring up we talked about this being a real chance for a non-red bull car to win specifically the aston martin of alonso and it was well, this is the exact opposite if you're driving a Williams, a car that is optimized to go super fast on long, straight stretches of track and just hang on by fingernails through the twisty bits. This is the worst track for Williams I can imagine. But it also shows up where experience really matters in Formula One, and that's Uh, You're going to be angry. I'm going to say the words tire and management next to each other. But this is where experience is really mattering a lot. And Sargent is still learning his craft. It's resurfaced. We had weather changes, but he was just getting killed, keeping his tires alive. And that's something that he should be able to grow into with the support of his team and with the help of his teammate, Alex Albon, who seems to be more on top of it, having had multiple years at this level to learn his craft. Can I have a very small rant? A very small. We've been waiting. Okay. Yeah, I'm on a very small power rant. Basically, so this highlights a problem. So Williams, stuck heart, stuck sergeant, after all of his shenanigans and, 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 and getting mugged, basically put him on to the soft tires so they said so they can give him a lesson in how to manage and deal with the graining on the tires the engineers are talking him through what to do and this highlights 
a quite ridiculous thing that keeps happening in Formula One at the moment and really starts getting my back up is in these rookie drivers come in Formula One, there's barely any testing. They get a lot of simulator, but there's barely any testing in a real car. They barely have a chance to get on track. They're put under immediate pressure. And then you have people like Helmut Marco after one and a half races saying, your career could be at risk here. So this is like Williams are actually using the race to try to teach him because he's had no time. And these these new drivers coming in have got barely any time to learn and they're instantly put under the spotlight and their seats are at risk after three, four races. And I think this is a really, really negative thing for Formula One and like you have to give them a chance to bed in. Now, if there was more testing during the winter, yes, that wouldn't be so much of an excuse. But I think people forget that these guys essentially had one and a half days in this car to learn and that is it thrown straight into the season so actually i think we should cut them a bit more slack well this happened last year matt where i was very critical of yuki sonoda and pierre gasly was fair to say wiping the floor with him to begin the year and now yuki sonoda is doing the same to nick de Vries, who kyle uh, referenced there where helmet marco is putting him under pressure a little bit and look logan Sargent's in the same position a driver who needs testing time in the car and when you're sitting in last place struggling for pace it's the best time uh, wait, are we talking about how DeVries saved his career by beating his teammate today? He saved his career. Now, that's a hot one. Now, that's a hot one right there. One race, one race makes a difference. And what was it for P12, I think, at the end? Uh, he was. There was at least one car between him and Sunoda. Although, to be fair, I think Sunoda was having issues with his brakes, probably with glazing, um, which is a complicated technical subject that I could easily spend 15 or 20 minutes talking about with Kyle, if you'd like. Well, the only glazing I've heard of is the ones you do on cakes and stuff. Is this a different form of glazing? Yeah, well, in essence, and uh, Kyle, if you'd rather explain this, please go ahead. But in essence, it's it happens when, because Formula One brakes need to be really hot to work properly. If you don't brake hard enough, the brakes just simply don't work at all. But if you get them hot enough and then you let them cool down too much, you, you get sort of this coating on the brake disc. Yeah, so it's sort of you get this thing almost called, called like work hardening that you get and you kind of create this almost like this very hard layer and you can't break through it. Remember, uh, the mo- one of the most poignant cases we had of this, remember, was the 2008 qualifying session in Monza, the race that Vettel won and it was wet and Hamilton glazed his brakes and he was in the bitter championship battle with Massa at the time and he just couldn't get through the qualifying because he managed to glaze his brakes. And we're not confirmed that this is what happened to Sonoda, but his team are actually on onto him saying... You know, they can see many issues and they're actually giving him the hurry up. And we don't, it's not often you hear that saying, look, you need to be faster, push, push through it. And I love Yuki's clap back. Like you're trying to crash me. <laughs> What's going on here? So, but, but yeah, if you've got no confidence on the brakes in Monaco, that is bad. And he didn't want to put it in the wall. So it may not have been glazing. It may have been some other issue. It may have been, but you will admit just for the sake of the show that we had perfect conditions for it because you had one tiny bit of the track that was super slippery where you had to go slow and then you had other bits of the track that were almost dry where you were really getting the brakes hot and then you had brakes that were set up for dry conditions and a much hotter track absolutely and usually if they know it's a wet session before they go out into the wet session they'll put some tape over the brake ducts to try to keep the brake temperatures more in the window and of course in the middle of a pit stop, which takes two, two point something seconds, you don't really have time to get the gaffer tape out. And they're not allowed to make dynamic little shutters on them because that would be a movable aerodynamic device. So, yeah, it probably was the perfect, perfect, we had all the ingredients to make brake glaze soup. And he may have had it. We may not. But, but, but we don't know. But I did feel for him slightly. 
Well, it, it seemed like everybody's brakes uh, breaks were glazing in the in the opening laps anyway. So on on the whose fault is it? I know Nico Hulkenberg did receive the five second penalty with Sargent. So can we all agree? Is anybody who thou shalt speak now, unless otherwise disagree with that penalty? I guess everybody sort of says that it was fair, Matt. I fail to see the problem with using somebody else's brake to stop your car. <laughs> which is important to to make it to the end of the race and potentially make it onto the podium, which leads us to our podium here. So so which one do we usually go with first? Is it the good thing? Should we start with the good thing of the weekend? The thing of the weekend, who wants to go first on this one? Everybody's really protective, I think, of their thing of the weekend. Kyle, you've been seriously protective of yours this weekend. Well, yeah, because I know and you've got to keep it a secret because one of the other pesky panellists or hosts will snipe your thing of the weekend and leave you completely stumped and on the spot. And I usually completely forget about these awards and usually have to make something up. But I actually thought about this one during the race and after the race. And that was we had a Monaco Grand Prix with cars out of position, with lots of broken carbon fiber, changeable weather conditions, all the tire compounds used, slippery, track temperature changing. And it wasn't a safety car. There was not a safety car. And in the recent history of Formula One with this, you know, in very recent history of them being so risk averse that even if a Marshall parted and followed through, they'd throw a safety car. There was no safety car. I couldn't believe it. And that is my thing of the weekend. Nice one, Formula One. Well done, all the drivers and well done, Race Direction. I thought it was spot on. And that is such a rare, rare thing to happen. I just thought it was crazy. I But, but guaranteed it goes... I'm I'm lucky I didn't look at my betting app too much before this because there's usually a bet will there be a safety car yes or no and it's like free money just throw, just put money on that and really really happy I didn't go down that route. I'm, I'm glad I'm not the only buddy who thought of the betting markets when no safety car came out. I think the last one Kyle was 2021 Monaco didn't have a safety car and before mm. that was 2009. So you're talking mm. over a decade. And I believe both neither of those races had rain as well, which just mm. makes it even more amazing so so yeah that's my thing of the weekend i think it's incredible jules did uh, kyle steal your thing of the weekend with with the safety cars luckily not though i wish i uh, i had such an original one as this one because i hadn't thought of it um but my thing of the weekend uh, got a slight mention already but it is uh, nick de Vries. um one of the media stories besides Hamilton and Ferrari was uh, De Vries's position would be a, a threat. Um, and I think he did exactly what he needed to do, have a solid weekend, not trying to be a hero, uh, keeping a car that is, well, arguably the worst uh, AlphaTauri or Toro Rosso uh, from recent history, keeping it uh, in these conditions uh, um, on track, no damage. Um, I think he did a good job uh, to uh, cut himself some slack. Matt, did you like that one? Yeah, actually, I like that one. Um, And of course, I wish we had another 90 minutes to discuss how there's sort of a media feedback loop that seems to be influencing how teams are having to deal with drivers that seems to be more and more powerful these days than I remember it being in the past, although being old, my memory is sometimes somewhat suspect. So I would agree with Jules and think that that could be a, a a fruitful discussion for another day. Let's put it that way. And as far as my thing of the week, you would probably say it has to be, you know, one of my favorite drivers, a person for whom I root, 
Esteban Ocon finishing third, giving props to the team, and the team itself under immense pressure from its corporate management delivering. They said, we promise we want to fight for a third fastest team and say what you will about uh, today. I think you could make a salient argument. They were not the third fastest team today, but the driving and the nature of the track let them stay there. But on Saturday, they were legitimately the third fastest car on that track uh, behind the Ferraris. Uh, well, fourth fastest, I suppose. Technically, Leclerc was faster had he not obstructed. But they were the fourth, but whatever. They were doing what they said they were going to be doing, and we're all happy about that. But I have to give an honorable mention because we didn't bring it up. People mm-hmm. were like, why should I like Monaco? Here's my answer. Cranes. Monaco will pick your car up and show its nether regions to the world unlike any other track. And all of my technical F1 journalist friends are so excited to have all of these pictures finally, finally, of the floors of the cars. Even though, like, you know, they don't tell you everything about the car, but they've just been hiding them for no real particular reason because it's not like anyone can copy anybody else's because it depends on how the whole rest of the car is designed. But it's nice to, we got everybody, but I think Aston's that we care about. Well, that actually, I think it's the worst place to crash would be Monaco for that reason, because everybody can steal your underfloor design, the design that is responsible for 50% of the aerodynamics of the car. That's what they say. And yet it shows up, Kyle, when you crash at Monaco, it is the most devastating thing. I think there was a, a picture of Adrian Newey who was devastated when Perez crashed in qualifying, I think. Or was it another crash? I'm not sure. Yeah, it's just, well, none of them like their dirty underfloors being shown in public, do they? No, they don't. Well, you know what? That leads into my thing of the weekend, my thing of the weekend, if you're going to talk about underfloors. But is uh, the opposite is I'm not staring up. I'm staring right down. And it is the helicopter shots at Monaco which I, as far as I am aware, since uh, FOM have taken over the coverage from the local broadcasters, is the first time we've had a helicopter at Monaco. Now, it could be wrong, and please excuse me if that is wrong, but I don't remember seeing shots that high up, yeah, from from Monaco. So um, that, to me, was thing of the weekend, to get a chopper up there in the principality uh, with all the hills surrounding um, that was that was marvelous, but now it's time to move on to find out what missed the apex. Oh no, you missed the apex, Matt. There was a lot that happened. A lot of people missed the apex. Not literally. I would say if you did miss the apex at Monaco, you would crash. What missed the apex for you, Matt? Oh well, ah, this is a this is a very challenging one uh, because I want to be very arcane and say anyone who wasn't paying attention to Valtteri Bottas sector two times right before everyone switched to enters. But you know what really missed the apex for me? And it's not because I dislike him as a driver, as a person, but George Russell's Uh radio messages about (laughs) swapping positions, um, you know, oh, well, you know, um, could you let me go ahead of Hamilton so I could attack Ocon because it looks like I'm way faster than him. And then three laps later, he's seven seconds back because his car has been destroyed by Perez. Just, George, I love you. But, but think before you press that send button, my friend. Just think a little bit. So, so this was when George Russell had the five-second penalty and said, you know what, if I can get ahead of Lewis, 
I'll get 4.9 seconds. Kyle, is that fair? 4.9 seconds. And I'll let Lewis finish ahead <laughs> of me. I'll get the point one. It could be nip and tuck. We saw it go wrong. Was it was it Michael Schumacher and Rubens Barrichello back at, a, at Indianapolis one year tried to make it a, a nip and tuck finish? And yeah, and Barrichello accidentally won the race. Yeah, I think Schumacher was trying to repay Austria that year. But yeah, it's, it's very, very hard to orchestrate. I can kind of understand why George was coming from, was trying to use it as, oh, I've got a penalty. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm being pushed behind, but George does this in most of the races. He's a, he's a wily, he's a wily fox on young shoulders. He's got a wily fox's head on young shoulders. So, uh, yeah, Lewis has got to watch his back there because I think George's can kind of sugar wrap these, uh, these, uh, proposals and, and suggestions where he will be the main benefactor. <laughs> so you got to be a bit careful there. Well, before I forget, uh, Matt, socials, uh, for us, Mr. Apex, uh, yourself. I always forget your social handle. I know I follow you on everything, but I don't always remember what your actual handle is. It's at MattPT55 on pretty much any um, social network you care to search for me on. And you were teammates with Kyle K Power 55? Kyle Power? Is that it? <laughs> no, I'm Kyle Power F1, I believe. Have you lost the 55? Am I thinking of someone different? No, that's Matt. Oh, that's Matt. Matt oh, Matt sorry. PT yes, I'm getting 55. Oh, there you go. There you go. I'm getting mixed up there. Well, Kyle, on to you. Bad thing for the weekend. Um, I'm a bit stumped on this one. I'm So I'm going to take the easy cop out, and that's Ferrari dropping the ball again. That's my thing. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't have any other thing. I'm thinking there were several. I've already, I've already criticised Perez for his, for his general, general sort of a dive bombing terrorism that he was doing. Um, but he wasn't even doing that really. But yeah, um, I'm not going to say anything bad more about Perez. Yeah, I reckon it's it's it, it's Ferrari somehow managing to screw up again. Not is that the it, that must be the hundredth time they've won the Missed Apex Award for screwing up? Probably, it's just happened probably. so many. Are we are we going to reach a moment, Kyle, where they actually do like actually nail the strategy one day and we're actually pleased? I can't remember the last time that happened. I can't. Um, I can't, to be honest. I mean, there's been so much, such a litany of errors over the last few seasons. And this is why it's a soft target, and I probably should stop criticising them over it because it's a highly pressurised environment. And we may, they may have nailed the strategy. It just we just probably went unnoticed, and we had the typical pick up on the uh, negative points. But it it is such a sort of a recurring theme now that it's 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 yeah it's sort of commonplace. And you know the engineers on the radio saying we are checking and then not coming back to them, which is classic now. It's, it's kind of it's kind of becoming like a bit of a meme, like a bit of a almost like a comedy event of you know you know when you hear the yeah Ferrari engineers saying we are checking, it's kind of like you know it's almost like a derogatory thing now. It's like oh right, they're going to screw it up now and then, aren't they? <laughs> they say they're going to check it. We know they're going to get it wrong. And yeah, but the, their own drivers have been angry with them. Science was angry with them. Yeah, I just I don't know. For their sake, I hope they have a pull a blinder. I hope they they snaffle a win with a genius strategy decision at some point this year because I think the team really, really needs it on the strategy thing just to give them some confidence back in their decision making. I think they're what four, five races behind in points now, Jules. It's going to be a tough world for Ferrari for the rest of the year. I think Mercedes is three races behind. Alonso's two races behind. Championship could almost be over and out. Jules, your bad thing of the weekend. Well. Funny you should mention it, uh, Jono. Um, my missed apex goes to the team of Aston Martin, uh, not because of the the probable strategy mistake they made with Alonso, 
but for because of the fact um i fear for them the their best days of outpacing uh, the mercs on a sunday are behind them and they are still only one point in front of them in the constructor standings and i think if you have a car like they have and if you've had an advantage in these first uh, races uh, uh, of the season you should have uh, capitalized a lot more on that than they have and i'm not going to mention the driver who's mostly <laughs> Wait, are you suggesting aston are fighting with one driver tied behind their back i'm not saying that but i'm not not saying that Jules, you're on socials as well yeah yeah uh can't can't stay behind uh yeah my twitter handle is to, it's very easy no no uh no numbers no 55s or 44s or it's just jewel sagers one in one go links, links in are in the show notes yes they are exactly links are in the show notes you can check them out as well uh my bad thing of the weekend it's got to be sergio perez sorry i love you sergio but this is this is a street circuit this is your thing this is what you you should be mastering um that's all from us hope you enjoyed the monaco grand prix race review we'll be back as always for spain next weekend and for our midweek shows too but for now though from myself from the whole gang take care we'll see you later It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.